Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back for week two of Agronomist Edition. We're going to do a double dose from the state of Nebraska. We've got Nathan Mueller, University of Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, Nathan, uh, just full of uh, great observations from 2023, gives us some great uh, insight into things to consider. A unique perspective as we discuss irrigation and, and some of the ways to think about uh, maturities, both in corn and soybeans. And then actually something new on our show, we're going to introduce, uh, interview John Fetch. Uh, John's actually an arborist, also from the University of uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, but kind of a change of pace for us. We're going to discuss a little bit about uh, ornamentals, uh, lawn and turf, and then trees, and some of his observations under the drought and more stressful conditions. So enjoy. Hope everybody had a great holiday, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, we're, we're going uh, to the great state of Nebraska. We are going to pick, uh, and we're lucky enough to have uh, Dr. Nathan Mueller on here. So we're lucky enough to pick his brain uh, on, on, you know, what he learned from 2023 that we can take into 2024. So uh, Nathan, uh, give us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, uh, you know, where you went to school and what you do at Nebraska right now. Yeah, so um, uh, Nebraska native. So I grew up north and west of Omaha uh, on a corn, soybean, alfalfa, oak dairy farm. So became an agronomist because the agronomy part was a lot easier than the dairy part. <laughs> um, yep. Absolutely. Uh, That's hilarious. So, um, yeah, did my um, bachelor's and master's at UNL um, in Lincoln in agronomy. Um, then I actually worked in Indiana, Northwest Indiana, kind of from Chicago down to Lafayette for a department of ag and soil conservation while my wife went to Purdue. Uh, <laughs> then we hopped down to Manhattan, Kansas, where I did my PhD in soil fertility uh, with Dorvar Ruiz Diaz um, down oh, yeah. there. And then I was a professor, extension specialist statewide for putting variety trials at South Dakota in Brookings for SDSU. Nice. And then eventually made my way back home here to Eastern Nebraska as a currently as a water and cropping systems extension educator. I've been with Nebraska Extension now nine years. Oh, um, nice. Kind of two locations here in Eastern Nebraska. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, uh, you, you, uh, you, uh, learned from a, a, a extremely, uh, smart individual. We had Doravar on our podcast to talk about a soil fertility here not too long ago. So learn, yeah. learn from uh, one of the best, uh, you know, as we, uh, start the show, you know, this, this is uh, the year end wrap up. And so I, I think, you know, as, as an agronomist and, and somebody that makes recommendations, you know, I, I think the, you know, it, it's always good to get better, right. Continuously learn, take, key learnings and lessons from 2023, what we can use into 2024 as we plan for, you know, different management practices or just, you know, things for the upcoming growing season. What, what, let, let's start with, you know, what, what have you seen and, and what did you learn from 2023? Well, um, in Southeast Nebraska, we were now in the second year of drought. Um, so I, I think we had some compounded effects from year two on the drought that we, maybe didn't think would be as extreme as what we thought, but carrying over and not coming in with subsoil moisture, uh, we were never able to dig out of that. And that impacted irrigation management yields. Maybe if we would have 
thought we were going to stay in the drought, we would have planned differently in the spring. But people are always, farmers are always ever optimistic. They might complain <laughs> um, a lot, but they're actually always optimist, in my opinion, and growing oh, yeah. up on the farm. So you always hope for the best. You don't always plan for the worst. And unfortunately, we kind of had a pretty tough scenario for growers this year here in southeast Nebraska. So, yeah, um, yeah you're rewinding that. Um, I think, you know, I talked a little bit about being a little bit more defensive, but probably not as much as I should have as an agronomist. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, le- lessons learned. I, that's the thing about agronomy is each year uh, you learn more. Um, I'm 41 and I'm, I have a lot left to learn as, as I've gotten older, I realized that the less I know, and the more we got to be nimble and kind of have some contingency plans or, or at least, you know, I, I wish I knew more about marketing, but that's a big part of production <laughs> ag. Oh, yeah. Um, I focus on the agronomy that sometimes that's easier than the marketing. So, yeah, well, that, that's, I mean, that's, that's really good, uh, a discussion point, you know, as we continue to have these dry conditions across the corn belt. You know, I think you're right. Growers are, for the most part, extreme optimists, right? You always want to plan for the best, uh, you know, in, in hopes that we get that, you know, Mother Nature gives us the weather we, that we need to raise those high yields. But, I mean, looking at the last three to four years, we, we've just had environmental conditions that probably aren't conducive for what we would say we need. And, and yet, I, I feel like a lot of the Corn Belts had record yields in spots. You know, granted, there's always spots that aren't aren't up there, but right. you know, I think we always, yeah, you got a plan. It's, it's a tricky conversation, but one you got to keep in the back of your mind and be willing to have. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about when you made the comment about, you know, constantly learning and a lot left is we started this podcast probably as much for our own learning, but, but to try and distribute that learning, you know, to our listeners. And I think what I'm fascinated by is, you know, learning is getting so global and you have access. It's one of the fun things about doing these um, end of year updates is we get to learn about a bunch of environments uh, outside of, you know, maybe our our original scope. So I guess as you, as you think um, about 2024 planning, it's going to sneak up on us, right? Planting's right around yeah. the corner that we're into the winter ag sales cycle. What, what are you advising um, either sales agronomists or your, or your growers to really have as key considerations going into 2024? Yeah, I think um, variety selection, hybrid selection, both. Um, I talked about winter wheat um, here recently because we do have about 15,000 acres of wheat in the three counties I cover and about 40,000 in Southeast Nebraska. But uh, now we've obviously been talking about corn and soybeans already. Um, I think because we're again going into a, it's hard to make up soil moisture and subsoil moisture deficits here in eastern Nebraska over the winter because we just don't get the the precip or the snow. Uh, we're very likely at this point to have you know dry subsoil conditions going into next spring. So in terms of hybrid and variety selection, I think leaning a little bit more on some of those defensive traits in terms of on the, the drought resistant scores, talking to your seed dealers um, about that, especially on dry land, but even on irrigation, uh, we've seen quite a bit of drop in some of our irrigation wells. And so the area I cover cover is about 30% irrigated okay. uh, for corn and soybeans. And so we actually, we had troubles this year that were highlighted. We had people that did corn um, after alfalfa under irrigation and um, we're disappointed in yields, and I really think we weren't able to keep up. Uh, we, we came into that situation really dry. Um, even this, we were so dry in, in you know May and June that we did have some corn failures where we had hillsides on dry land that yielded zero. 
we we've stressed that plan out enough. I've always said I didn't think we'd stress out early season, you know, corn stress. We always say, yeah. oh, you can yeah. you don't need stress to stress it early, right? Yeah. Yeah, you can stress <laughs> it early. You don't need to water, turn the pivot on right away. I think this was the year where the people who were more aggressive and, and started those pivot up sooner. Uh, that was definitely an advantage this year because once you're in the midst of that high crop water use, yeah, it's pretty hard. I mean, you're just keeping up. You're not going to dig out. And so we just, some people got behind um, yeah. on that. And so I guess, you know, we have natural resource districts that regulate um, in some areas, the amount of water. We're in an area where I'm at that there isn't current regulations, but yeah, um, especially on the alfalfa crop. And we have about 15,000 acres of alfalfa, um, you probably growers need to start thinking about watering first thing in the spring once our uh, soils are no longer frozen. So I'm talking April 1st, mm-hmm. um, starting up pivots on, on irrigated alfalfa. Yeah. Um, because your alfalfa, even worse than corn, you're not going to catch back up. So yeah. some early season irrigation, um, even from the herbicide um, standpoint to make sure that we're keeping some of those yeah. uh, pre-emergence herbicides activated. Um People did a pretty good job this spring of actually turning the pivot on after planting. They they knew that part uh, pretty well just from past experiences, and that really helped with weed control. So our weed escapes actually weren't too bad this year um, because of that approach with people yeah. with irrigation. Can, can I ask so, a question around? Yeah. Can I ask a question around maturity? So we've been having this discussion that you know how do we handle? So if if we know we're light on moisture. Do you shift maturity one way or the other? Uh, do you see yourself going to a, a shorter RM or are you trying to stretch the growing season and, and span the summer months? Yeah, where we're at in Southeast corner of Nebraska, we're kind of in those upper, you know, mid threes for maturities um, on soybeans. And we're even up to, you know, 118 day corn. Yeah. Um, so I think what I've learned um, over the past, just running variety trials like in South Dakota and then looking at company data, first trials, for example, here that runs in Nebraska is don't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, (laughs) You you really don't know what weather's going to bring. Let's talk about rain fed or dry land soybeans. Mm -hmm. If you knew what the rainfall pattern was going to be in August, you know, wet, early, dry, late or flipped, that really would impact what maturity is going to perform well in a dry land environment. So um, my recommendation going into this year's again is plant some 2.5 beans, but also plant your full season beans just to spread out your risk because people try to outguess that um, the past couple of years down here. Um, And we've gotten the opposite results depending on the growing season. So, um, you know, that would be one on, on soybeans for sure. Corn, um, you know, I still would lean on company data and drought resistance yep. uh, would be something I'd look at a little bit more heavily. And, and that we can find across maturities. Obviously, um, sometimes we cool down and pick up some moisture late down here. That happens a lot more as you get into southeast Kansas where they kind of plan for that. We're kind of on the edge of that. So sometimes you can benefit from having some full season corn um, on some of the dry land. Yet, yeah, so. I always laugh when farmers tell me they don't gamble. yeah do it every day yeah well uh i'm I'm really glad you brought up the the discussion on wells and and just irrigation you know having a water and cropping systems extension specialist on here uh, i think it's a perfect time you know if if you look west of you even further to some of the water shortages that, that arizona and you know those states around there are facing what what are the wells in in that whole you know 
we'll call it ecosystem or just part of production within Nebraska. What's that looking like? Because I feel like that discussion alone is probably a much bigger impact in in the Corn Belt than than just a year by year basis. Oh, yeah. So what what are those wells looking like? Sure. Sure. Well, one, I, there was a recent uh, article I, I read, and just there's actually been an increase of irrigation acres further east, Iowa, Illinois, southeast U.S. So if you look at irrigation, uh, there's more irrigated acres that have moved east. Uh, obviously, Nebraska is the number one irrigated um, state um, in terms of, of, of acres with, I think, about nine million. But um, yeah, it's really dependent on regions in Nebraska. We are fortunate to have natural resource districts and boards um, that manage that water and look at those decisions. So it's by watershed. It's not by county. Uh, so they're really looking at, you know, within a stream system and even managing groundwater. So it really does vary across the state where we sit for depletion of groundwater. If we look back at, to, you know, 1960s reference or even 2012 reference, but you know, where I'm at, we're, we're kind of where, where we're at in 2012, we've had two dry years back to back. So we have different types of aquifers. Um, like for example, one in my area is kind of a paleo aquifer. So it's kind of a, um, one that doesn't recharge maybe as fast as our Okalala aquifers that aren't, you know, a little less connected. So that we've seen a decrease, um, in what's available. And so, you know, that's an area I know our natural resource district is looking at, do we need to put pumping restrictions in that area in the future. Yeah. I don't think they've made a decision. Uh, they Those talks have happened a lot as you move west of here, but yeah. um, now we're having those same types of talks that, you know, central and western Nebraska have. We're having those same talks here in yeah. southeast Nebraska now. So. Boy, just thinking about the, the, the impact that could potentially have. I mean, you, you hear some of those battles going on in Arizona. I mean, you look at all the crops that they grow out there in terms of veg and, and just everything in general. I mean, yeah, it, that could have a huge impact on Nebraska. My first paid job was, well, I sold TVs at Best Buy. My <laughs> second paid job, I had to go measure uh, grain bins for the NRCS office, you know, when you borrow against grain. And I remember the, the intense feeling of walking onto someone else's farm, and, you know, with your tape measure. And, and, you know, I'm from the government. I'm here to, you know, measure your bin. And I just think, uh, you know, almost like a Yellowstone theme of being the... Uh, natural resource officer who has to tell a producer how much oh, water yeah. they're allowed to use. That's uh, that's got to be a a pretty intense job, a very important one. But man, you talk about uh, a high pressure situation. <laughs> I, I, I I would agree. And, yeah. Uh, so yeah, kudos to those guys. But yeah, they're managing it for the best of everybody. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that can put individuals, um, <laughs> you know, in a pinch too. So yeah, yeah it, it's. Yeah. Well, let, let's hope we don't ever get to the situation. What is it? I think us is it Australia? Or the, there's a country that has that bases when they plant and what crop they plant on whether or not they're going to get rainfall or when they're going to get rainfall. I think yeah, I think I heard it's Australia. Yeah. Like there's a there's a region where they won't wait. They'll wait until they actually get some kind of some sort of moisture. So let's hope we don't get there. Yeah, it's it's also I think it's interesting because one of the things that we so you talk about irrigation moving to the to the east. And, you know, it's interesting to me, there's, there's a farmer not far from here and, you know, the dead center of, of Iowa that put up an irrigation pivot. And I kind of laughed when they were doing it because everybody else is putting 60 foot center pattern tiles, you know, in the last couple <laughs> yeah. of years, I'm going, yeah. maybe that guy's smarter than we are because <laughs> he's spending money on getting water to his crop and we're trying to get it away from it. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I really appreciate it, Andrew. Do you have 
a follow-up? Yeah, no, I, I think just build, building on that, you know, it, it's it's obviously a different growing environment, you know, during, during with dealing with irrigation, non-irrigated acres. Um, are there any other key takeaways, you know, as you look at 2023, um, obviously irrigation impacts, I mean, you can impact pH, you can impact nutrient mm-hmm. uptake, right? Which which in turn impacts stock yeah. quality, standability in soybeans and, and then yield. And anything else you notice in 2023 that, you know, that, that would help growers plan for 2024? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have a couple challenges going on in terms of what I would call um, new and emerging pest and diseases. So not new to the eastern Corn Belt, but new to us here in the western Corn Belt with the expansion movement of tar spot and corn. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, so where I'm located, we, we identified it um, last year um, in, in Gage County um, in the three counties I cover. So we just found it really, I, we looked at 16 irrigated fields thinking it would show up there first because of the higher, you know, leaf wetness and moisture canopy. And we found it in one field, uh, out of 16 when I, we looked all day. So it was a needle in a haystack, which was great, but I did warn all my growers this past winter. So I'm talking January, you know, what, 11 months ago that, Hey, like this stuff can move fast. It's in the area. And sure enough, um, had a lot of texts of pictures to me, um, calls saying, Hey, we have tar spot. I did the same survey about the first week of September, uh, went out and collect samples for our pathologist. Uh, I stopped at five fields and four of the five fields, there was tar spot in versus one out of 16. Uh, so I actually cut off my survey early because there was no point of marching on across checking more fields. Uh, so tar spot is now pretty widespread. It still was at a low, what I would call low incidence or severity. Um, but high frequency. So meaning it was in, in most fields at, at low, uh, low range. So what that sets us up for, if the weather pattern turns around and we turn wet, or we rely heavily on irrigation again, again, in some of these irrigated fields, we now have that spore or of that disease triangle. We now have the disease there. So right now, now we're talking, do we have a susceptible hybrid and do we have the environment to complete that triangle? So um, I think tar spot is something we definitely need to be considering besides drought resistance, but especially our irrigated ground. Um, companies are getting more information on their hybrids in terms of how they're performing against tar spot. I know it's been hard for them to screen because it's hard to to um, generate and grow that tar spot. And so yeah, they're bringing in leaves or bringing in residue to increase the infection or finding areas high uh, for screening hybrids. But some of those conditions for our hybrids here, they haven't had. So yeah. I think that's that's a new one that's just going to be on people's radar. The other one is if applicable to maybe the, the folks in Iowa mentioned um, earlier was we have soybean gall midge, oh, yeah. which is yeah. currently kind of restricted to Minnesota, South Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, now into Kansas. A belt in the epicenter was actually here in Nebraska, essential Nebraska. And Justin McMickens, our entomologist, uh, great um, extension specialist. And so unfortunately in my counties, uh, we had it last year, but there was a lot, it was a lot more noticeable. Yeah. Uh, so that's something more growers are going to see in their fields on their field edges. It's a field edge pest yep. um, that can cause quite a bit of yield loss on the field edges. Luckily, it's not yeah. field wide, but unfortunately, uh, we don't have very good management tools um, for variety, for pesticides. Really, um, the only thing that's that's worked um, is called hilling or ridging, um, but that's covering up the base of that plant. So those fissures lower on the stem that they just can't get those adult, those flies can't get into there. Yep. You know, if we're 
highly erodible land, guess what? That's not going to be an option. We just talked yeah. about NRCS. Yeah. Uh, you do that, then, you lose moisture too. What, lim- what yeah, limited yeah. moisture? So yeah. It's not a very practical um, solution, though we've at least found something. So we have a lot more to learn on that pest. And so um, that we're, you know, the United Soybean Board, Nebraska Soybean Board, the region, Iowa State had a really good program with Nebraska, Minnesota here that I attended just to learn more about myself from the specialist. Uh, so multi-state. So I just encourage growers in the area to, to keep up with the latest research. Um, and so, and so it's kind of a, more of a, a stay tuned moment, I guess, yeah, on yeah. dealing with that pest. That, that's a strange one. Those things are such clumsy flyers and yet they move from Southeast South Dakota, Northwest Iowa to Southern Iowa. And it's, yeah. it's strange. What, one of the things that you just said that I, I, there's, there's always these nuggets of, of just kind of, you know, things you don't expect, but I, I really like that idea of stay tuned. I think something that's been eye opening to me, my, my time that Andrew and I have gotten to work together, but then this podcast, what's been really interesting to me is just the power of, of the broader network that's paying attention to all these different um, diseases and insects and, and cropping systems. So I was thinking when you were talking about tar spot, I wouldn't wish tar spot on, on anyone, <laughs> right? You don't want anyone to have tar spot. But one of the things that frustrated me was that tar spot didn't act the same in Iowa as it's acted in Illinois and Indiana, and it likely won't act the same way in Nebraska as it's acting in Iowa. And so the power of us kind of all, you know, compiling our, our, our data and our observations, I think is really powerful and, and will help us manage that stuff. And so yeah. it's a, that's a, a, a great call out. And I think it's something that, that we're hoping to really promote is that people are just aware of what's going on and it might be affecting uh, Eastern Nebraska today, but, but it certainly could be um, central Iowa or Indiana or Illinois or, or anywhere else, you know, next year. So yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think that's, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, a lot of good uh, takeaways and learnings from 2023 that I think we can we can think about for 2024. Yeah. So uh, before we let you go, Nathan, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, you know, it. I just, you know, another emerging issue that's creeping, um, creeping west. We have had the opportunity to have Antonio Malarino ah. uh, from Iowa State, um, uh, a soil fertility specialist. Uh, Another thing that besides tar spot and soybean gall midge that have kind of moved into areas is actually potassium deficiency. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's something that I, I got called out on, looked at some fields <laughs> this year. Um, luckily, I had seen it before, you know, working in, in Indiana and in Kansas. Um, and so it, it wasn't a surprise to me, but it's, it's a surprise to growers. We've been fortunate enough to have those you know, the soil mineral mineralogy and in time to be able to have what, you know, almost what 150 years of crop production uh, before we really need potassium, but we're now <laughs> to the point where yeah. um, hundred, you know, after that many years and then higher yields, uh, irrigation, we've obviously increased yields. So, you know, the field I was on, we had 60, 70 part per million soil test K. Oh, yeah. um, uh, what are your on, pHs on, run in, in Nebraska from East to West? Yeah. So east to west, you know, we are on the acidic end here in east, and I wouldn't say acidic in terms of like south central Kansas acidic, but uh, probably mid fives uh, to low fives um, oh, wow. if things haven't been limed. Um, that can really impact potassium. Average, <laughs> yeah, on average, you know, at five and a half to six. As you move west in Nebraska, it's the opposite, you know, issue where we start to run into IDC and we're above seven yeah. and a half. But most of my area, we're in that where we ag lime is a regular input. We're close to two di- couple different quarries. And so um, that's another one I talk a lot about 
um, is pH management. It, it doesn't influence potassium so much as it does some other nutrients, but those are still two things that I think growers probably need to focus on a little bit more in terms of future input costs to make sure we're not leaving yield behind soil pH. So I'm glad you brought that up. That's the other one I, I plan to start talking about more. And then the other one is because it's kind of new uh, to us is um, soil test K and potassium management. So Iowa State updated their recommendations. What I'm moving to Nebraska, we haven't had the chance to do that because we just haven't had the environment to, to update our recommendations. But in the eastern tier of counties here, um, for growers that want to be more aggressive on managing potassium, I'm going to say, hey, go ahead and use Iowa State's um, updated interpretations for soil test K, especially on ground you own. It's yeah. not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, if it's a, a year to year verbal lease and you don't know if you're going to be farming it next year, that's a little bit different situations, you know, managing soil, you know, ag lime as well as potassium. So those are things I think farmers need to look on. A, look at both budget land, you know, are they sure they're going to have that land if it's pretty stable? I think those are two good investments to look at, e even if when things are dry, um, you know, some people benefited. Um, I wouldn't say benefited. Uh, finally got some of their crop insurance money premiums back, right, with the low yields. And so if you're looking for an end-of-year expenditure and you're trying to look at, at taxes, I think um, potash and, and ag lime are, are two good things that can be good investments in the long term on, on fields where uh, they're, they're going to be generational farms. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, great advice. Yeah, well, it sounds like there's similarities between Iowa and Nebraska in that aspect. So that's a that's a good key takeaway. I'm I'm always reminded, you know, it's <laughs> it's so fun to talk about all the really sexy stuff, you know, and and all the peripheral stuff that's exciting, the these new concepts, and but but really, I mean, the basic soil science and hybrid selection and uh, base agronomics have to be really solid. So. Yeah. Um, uh, Nathan, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Appreciate you taking the time to educate us on what you're learning about and uh, uh, appreciate all the hard work you're doing in agriculture to support not only your your local area, but but help inform the greater algorithm. So really, uh, really appreciate it. Well, thanks for the invitation. Um, obviously, have family members in private industry, agronomy as well. And so I always enjoy uh, the interaction and opportunities that we have to leverage public and private partnerships and uh, working with our farmers that help feed us. So thank yeah, you for your time. Absolutely. Love it. Joining us now is John Fetch from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Um, introduce our guest. Yeah. So I, I thought it'd be interesting, you know, this is our uh, uh, edition where we give a year-end summary of, you know, just what we saw, uh, lessons learned. And uh, it, it's interesting. I want to get another viewpoint just to expand our, our listeners and get more information out there. So so John is actually an, an arborist and horticulturalist. And so I thought that'd be in, important information. So, so John, uh, thanks for being part of the show. Uh, if you could give us a quick background uh, on, on yourself, what your role is at, at Nebraska, and then uh, let's talk about 2023. Right. So I've been looking at trees and shrubs and lawns for 40 years now. And um, I've seen some changes over the years, but a lot of things remain the same. Uh, I've worked for two land grant universities, uh, Nebraska and Illinois, and seen a lot of similarities, but a few divergences as well. But I always try to keep open mind, open observations, open ears, because I'm always learning even after all this time. And oh, yeah. it's been a it's been a great ride. Yeah. Well, uh, before we get started, do you have anything for rabbits that you can recommend? <laughs> we, we just bought a new house six or seven years ago and planted an uh, enormous amount of shrubs. And man, I, the rabbits just do all kinds of damage. So someone needs to come up with traits that... 
<laughs> yeah, fend shrub off, traits. <laughs> make plants it. not so tasty. Yeah, I know it. Uh, you know, in, whenever you're dealing with something with a mind and legs, it makes it more difficult. <laughs> um, you know, the, the fungi and the insects are, are easier. Um, you know, exclusion uh, is the best. Second uh, best is accelerated lead. Um, <laughs> there you go. Accelerated lead. I like that. Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> Which That's is hilarious. not necessarily uh, a good idea in a city. Yeah, you know, within the city limits, but no, really, um, there are all sorts of repellents that don't work. Um, really, the only thing is that we encourage our our clients to do is prioritize their favorite plants and then exclude uh, yeah. in some way. Um, Pet and fox, maybe. Yeah, you know, well, <laughs> the exclusion might be chicken wire, hardware cloth, fencing, something along those lines. Um, but really, that's the that the key there is is prioritization and you know leaving a few to get eaten and keeping the ones you would like the most. <laughs> yeah. Well, well let, let's dig into 2023. Um, you know, we, we saw pretty dry conditions across the, the corn yeah. belt. Um, you know, obviously Nebraska, we, we typically joke that's I mean, that's drought every year almost, right? Yeah. So so let's you know, g- give us your takeaways, what you learned, what you saw uh in, in 2023. Really it's a, a observation and least uh, damaging or least common denominator. And um, when you have multiple influences uh, in a horticultural sense, trees, shrubs, lawns, golf courses, sports fields, um, you're always looking for the most influential factor out of, say, a dozen influential factors. Um, The ones that really seem to be the biggest factor this year was dry conditions in the eastern part of the state and wetter conditions in the western part of the state, which is a flip-flop. Hmm. Uh, typically, we get, oh, 12 inches of rain a year in the panhandle and 28 in the eastern part of the state. And this year was completely completely flip-flopped. Hmm. Um, so we follow the drought, mo- drought monitor maps and have noticed just differences there. Um, so when, that, when those trees become stressed um, and those lawns become stressed, then you start looking at other factors um, that become uh, more prevalent or more prevalent um, based on that stress that comes forth. Yeah. You know, one of the things that as I was prepping questions for, you know, having the conversation with you, you know, I I think we're so used to annual plants, you know, we work a lot with corn and soybeans. And then, I mean, I I love landscaping and planting exotic plants in my yard. Um, That's probably one of my other nerdy hobbies. Um, (laughs) But, you know, when dealing with annuals, or I'm sorry, perennials, you know, we, we have these environmental conditions. How, how does that impact, you know, whether you're raising shrubs on a farm, um, you know, vegetables, you're raising vegetables for seed? Um, I, I suppose that's an annual, but, you know, talking shrubs and perennials and trees, how, how do these drought conditions that we've experienced the last three years, whether it's disease, you know, crown rot, some of the root rot issues that we might, we might face, uh, foliar disease, how does that impact the, these perennials that you, you commonly deal with? Well, so if you're starting to stress them in a moisture sense and you're running, these plants are only getting 12 to 15 inches behind what they normally would get, then they become much more susceptible to other influential factors, which otherwise might be uh, able to be tolerated. So, for example, in a golf course setting, in a sports turf setting, in a lawn setting, a residential setting, um, 
if you're dealing with an in-ground irrigation system, for example, those systems typically are about 60% on average efficient. Um, and so, cause you have all the stuff to deal around with, you know, and you know, it's not like a cornfield where there are no obstructions. Yeah. It's where you, you've got all this stuff in the way and then you've got mixed heads and whoever installed it didn't understand the technology and put quarter turn heads next to uh, 180s next to 360s and put pop-up geared rotors next to fixed spray heads and all of that in the same zone. So you've got all these inefficiencies. Well, in a quote normal year, the inefficiencies can often be masked or at least tolerated. But in a drought year, those become very uh, ob uh, observable mm -hmm. and they become limiting factors. Um, the other situation is um, the pests that become more obvious and more robust when moisture is limiting. Um, we, we see a lot more problems um, with the insects that are attracted to stress trees yep. or insects that are attracted to stress perennials or whatever, spider mites, that becomes a, an issue. So, and there's less tolerance by the plant, less of capacity by the plant to tolerate it. Yep. Um, so th those are always issues. When you have a major limiting factor like the drought in Eastern Nebraska, then these other issues become much more influential. You know, it's, it's interesting because they like to tease me because I like to play golf. So I, I certainly, uh, <laughs> I certainly understand when, when you talk about the inefficiencies of irrigation, one of the things I guess that, that just jumps out to me is in row crop annual production, we're really looking at maximizing yield. And sometimes we, uh, we interact with a plant, maybe not in the plant's best interest, but in, you know, forcing output. When you think about a lot of these perennials, you know, your, the vegetative state of that plant is really important, right? And so I, I'm just thinking out loud, I wonder if the management isn't slightly tweaked because you're playing a lot longer game. You know, we, we know when the end is coming for our annual production plants yeah. where a perennial, you're, you know, you're obviously interested in the long-term health of that. Yeah. Um, it just feels a little bit, little little bit different, I guess, than, yeah. than the annual production. It's, it's strange though, because you mentioned that and, and uh, John, you mentioned that, you know, in, in these dry conditions, you're, you know, these perennials that you commonly deal with are more vulnerable to some of those pests and yeah. diseases. I mean, that's, identical. A, that's, that's like identical to what we deal with in corn and soybean production. You know, if, if you start having limiting, you know, whether it's nutrients, uh, what, whatever it may be water, you start having these limiting factors that those plants are much more prone to having issues, whether it's disease or insects. So I feel like there's common ground there. And that's, that's interesting to hear. Yeah, absolutely. We had a long conversation this morning about corn rootworm and how much we mask that under normal rainfall because we have root yeah. regeneration. It's the same yeah. amount of insect, just different, uh, uh, pressures. It, are there any key takeaways, you know, whether it's, um, you know, vegetable, vegetable seed production, just horticulture in general, but that, but then also, you know, I, I think why, why I really wanted to get your viewpoint on here is we've had three to four years of environmental conditions that are just a little bit different than what we're used to historically. And, and granted, Nebraska is typically drier, but I feel like you guys, you even mentioned the shift of, you know, the eastern part of Nebraska versus the western part kind of flip-flop. So, you know, are, are there any key takeaways, whether, whether we're planting new shrubs or trees in our yard, or whether we're a gardener, you know, are there any key takeaways from 2023 that maybe you saw looking at some of these environmental shifts or, or changes that we've seen? Are there any key takeaways that, you know, someone, a, a landscaper might, might be able to use or, or a home gardener? 
so the two that come to mind right away would be um, wise, correct, best management in terms of um, classic design. So separation of turf and ornamentals, they're different plants, they are managed differently. It, you wouldn't put uh, corn in the middle of the soybean field yeah. and manage them the same way. You wouldn't fertilize them the same, you wouldn't irrigate them the same, you wouldn't, they don't have the same pests. But we do that in in residential landscapes. We put trees right in the middle of the lawn. Yeah. And the trees have different requirements. Uh, they don't need mowing, for example. Um, and and they're fertilized differently and they're irrigated differently. So classic design principles really make a big difference. So mm. um, I, I have this uh, wish that someday if we could work with uh, lenders to insist that one of the things on on their list and either the realtor, the lender, whoever, the mortgage broker who in, in escrow, whenever you do this, is that you you need to go into in order to buy the loan or get get the loan or set it up or whatever, get the permits, whatever, is that, that your landscape design has to be uh, reviewed by a certified landscape professional. Mm. And some of these basic principles, um, repetition, spacing, species selection, natives, um, separation of turf and ornamentals, uh, classic things would make a huge difference. The second thing I would say, and uh, my son-in-law is a builder, so I get it. They totally destroy the soil. Oh, Whenever yeah. you build yeah. a house, it is garbage. Yeah, the topsoil is gone. <laughs> sea horizon subsoil <laughs> at best. And so then you you buy this expensive sod and expensive trees, and you put them in there, and they just sit there and pout for <laughs> 10 years. Yeah. And you try to overcome that with uh, automatic irrigation and, you know, four pounds of nitrogen per thousand which equilibrates to what how many pounds per acre yeah. about the same as you grow corn yeah, 160 yeah yeah 160 160, 200 pounds, so yeah. it's it's about the same um so those are two big big things one of the things i talk about commonly with um you know shopping malls apartment complexes uh and residential is the age of the soil and how badly it's been destroyed and how much time has it had to recover. Yeah. We get enough stuff that falls out of the trees to slowly build back some uh, organic matter and maybe even some, some bee horizon uh, that, that turf and trees and vegetables and fruit trees and whatever can eventually start to get their needs met by. But from zero to 10 years, that that is not the case. Yeah. And <laughs> that's when most of the problems uh, occur. Yeah. And so, you know, you're dealing with sticky, crappy clay and trying to let people try to grow something in it. And that that is just really hard to do. So if on my, you know, if I could play the divine for one day, <laughs> that would be it. It somehow institute the classic design principles and restoration of the soil that's been destroyed by the builder. Love it. Those, those two things. It's funny because those principles literally align with agriculture yeah, production, yeah. you know, but I, yeah. I just put a 
big deck on the back of my house. So I feel like I'm going to call you offline and we're going to talk about <laughs> soil restoration because I'm experiencing that right now. Yep. But uh, no, I really appreciate you taking time to join us. Uh, appreciate your your willingness to share your expertise and kind of talk about what you learned this year and um, any any last thoughts, Andrew? No, that was, that was great info. I mean, that's that that aligns. I mean, I, I have the same situation. Got, a, got a, a house that was built in the front yard, backyard was just tore up. Anytime we have dry conditions, the top soil is just gone. <laughs> You know, I think a lot of, I mean, th there is a lot of similarities between what you do and what we do, just different plants. And so, yeah. Well, and I was thinking the whole time, one of our key takeaways from, from our side of the table has been, you know, our soil is so good here. I mean, it's so good and it's unbelievable the amount of, um, the amount of things that can buffer. But when we get to these extreme environments, we start to notice if our pH is slightly imbalanced or if we don't have enough P and K, all stuff that would affect, I'm sure, in a different way, but similar fashion. And so we are one of our key takeaways from row crops is you really need to understand your soil science and, and yeah. have and have that yeah. balanced for for your output. So, yep. John, greatly appreciate it. Uh, thank you for taking time to join us. You're welcome. It's good to visit you, visit with you, and try to make a little bit of a connection, a little correlation. So, always good to uh, talk to other people in the green industry. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, sir. you bet. Talk talk to you again sometime. You bet. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com, or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.